Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Corinthians this morning, 2 Corinthians. We're going to take a little break from the book of Luke and look at 2 Corinthians. This is kind of a uh, it's kind of a follow-up on last week's sermon as I was reflecting on the message last week and as I was thinking about even things in my own life, I thought it would be good just to do a follow-up sermon to what we talked about last week. Our youngest son, Zachary, and you may where's my youngest son? You, know, you never see him. Um, he's actually in my office right now in his adaptive stroller, and he's asleep uh, because he does have special needs, and he sleeps a lot because of the seizure medicines that he's on. And so when he was about six months old, we knew that there was probably something wrong with Zachary. Um, he couldn't hold his head up. His eyes couldn't track with people. And so it was a Wednesday night at church, and uh, there was a meal going on, and he was sitting in the high chair, and there was a doctor in our church. This was our former church. A, a doctor came to Don and me and said, you know, your son really needs to get looked at. There's something that's just not right with Zachary. And so when he was about 11 months old, he had a diagnosis through a chromosome disorder test that they can do called a fish test. It's a, a fluorescent test where they test the chromosomes. Well, without boring you with all of the genetics, his 15th chromosome was inverted and duplicated. And so that gives Zachary severe autism. It gives him severe developmental de uh, delays and disabilities. Um, it makes him nonverbal, and it also gives him epilepsy. So he does have seizures. And so at that time, when we found out when Zachary was 11 months old what was wrong with him, of course, Don and I went through all the emotions that parents go through. A time of grieving, a time of questioning, asking God, why, why is this happening to our child? Thankfully, we had a, a good church family that helped us walk through that. And I remember in those early days, almost every day, here's what my prayer was. This was my prayer. I prayed it every day. Lord, would you do a genetic miracle in Zachary and reverse and duplicate that 15th chromosome back to where it's supposed to be so that our son could, quote, unquote, be a normal little boy. God, would you do a genetic miracle? That was the, the wording I would use. And so we prayed earnestly. We prayed persistently. Don and I prayed passionately. Our church joined us in, in praying. And so we pray diligently for God to heal, to do a work in Zachary. And then there came a crisis of belief in my life. One morning, I'm glad Don's not here yet. She's checking on Zachary. She said, don't cry. I probably will try not to. One morning when I was praying... I remember kneeling before the Lord and pouring my heart out to God and praying passionately for my son. And this wasn't any type of audible voice that I heard, but I knew deep in my heart that God was leading me to give up all rights to my son. And I said to God, Zachary is not my son. He's your son. He's just on loan. You've given him on loan to me to raise the best that I can. 
And so from that moment on, I knew that God was not going to answer my prayer for a genetic miracle. I knew from that moment on, and Don did as well, that God said no. And so God did not answer our prayers in the way that we wanted him to answer. But here's what happened. Just because God said no doesn't mean that we stopped praying for our son. It changed the way we prayed. We continue to pray for Zachary, but it changed the way we prayed. When God said no, instead of praying for a genetic miracle, now our prayer was, Lord, would you glorify yourself through Zachary? Lord, would you give us grace and strength to raise him the best that we can with a kid with special needs? And so it, it changed how we prayed. Didn't stop praying fervently. Didn't stop praying diligently. It's just when God said no, it changed how we went about praying. So when you think about prayer, last week, Jesus is teaching. Remember the neighbor that came at night and knocked at the door and kept knocking and pounding. And Jesus says, that's the way you're to approach the Lord. That's the way you're supposed to approach your Heavenly Father. You're you're supposed to ask, keep on asking. You're supposed to keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Go to the Lord in fervent prayer because God is generous. And so we, we were told last week we can pray with persistence. We can pray with diligence. We can pray with passion. But nevertheless, it brings up a very important question. A question maybe you struggled with last week when you were here. What happens when you pray diligently and you ask and you seek and you knock and you go before the Lord and you pour your heart out before the Lord and you diligently seek his face for an answer and he gives you a resounding no? How do you respond? When God doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you wanted him to. It's a difficult question because I'm sure there's many of you in this room that have prayed like me for God to do something. You've prayed fervently. You've prayed over and over again. You've prayed repeatedly. You've you've prayed persistently. And God just said, no, I'm not going to answer that prayer in the way that you want me to. So in light of last week's message where we're told to pray and seek God's face and and to be persistent because God's generous, I thought pastorally it would be good to do a follow-up sermon this week. And what happens when God says no? And you do pray and you pray and you pray. How do you respond? Well, Paul, the apostle, experienced this same reality. 2 Corinthians is probably one of the most autobiographical books of Paul where he talks a lot about his experience. And so we're given this very unique, extraordinary event in Paul's life that he doesn't give a lot of details about, but he he sheds some light upon prayer. So let's look together in 2 Corinthians, hopefully you're there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to start in verse 1. And then I'm going to give you a little bit of background here because this is kind of in the middle of Paul's flow of thought. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except for my weaknesses. 
Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think me more, so may think more of me than he does, or sees, or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to explore this passage of Scripture from four main areas, four main parts, four aspects. We're just going to go right in order here. Here's the first. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. We could, but this is Paul's visit to paradise. Paul's visit to paradise in verses 1 through 6. Now, this conversation that Paul's having here in chapter 12 starts back in chapter 11. And Paul is addressing these quote-unquote super apostles, these men that were very charismatic, these men that were very learned, these super apostles that came in and they were kind of captivating the church. They were winning the church over with their eloquence, but they were really false teachers. And so Paul basically is trying to to talk about their boasting and their bragging, and Paul really doesn't want to go there, but he does. He says, listen, these guys have all these things to boast about. Let me give you something to boast about. And so Paul talks about this experience he has. Now, notice he says, I know a man 14 years ago. Well, obviously, he's talking about himself. And we find out some things about what happened to Paul. We find out that Paul was caught up to the third heaven. Now, I don't have time to talk about the first heaven, the second heaven, the third heaven, paradise. Needless to say, Paul is caught up to where Christ is in heaven. That's the first thing. Second thing, Paul doesn't really know how it happened. He's like, I don't know if this was a vision, this was an out-of-body experience. I really don't know what happened to me. I just know I was there. It's not really important, the details. And third, we know that Paul was given some revelations. Paul was given some things to see, and he was forbidden to come back and talk about them. He said, these are too great for men to utter. I saw some things that I was not permitted to come back and to tell others about. And so, from this unique visit to paradise, of all people, Paul would be tempted to become conceited. I got to go to heaven. I got to go get these visions. I got to be transported up, beam me up, Scotty, to the throne room of God. If anybody had anything to come back and and write about or talk about, it would have been Paul. He could have been that super apostle that was so wonderful that people would listen to him because he went to the third heaven and came back. But in order for him not to become conceited, God does something painful in his life. So let's look at the second thing. Secondly, we see, I call it Paul's thorny problem. Okay, Paul's thorny problem. Look at verse 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, 
Because of the surpassing greatness of the visions, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. I want you to notice that it was given to Paul. Now you ask the question, well, who gave it to Paul? God gave it to Paul. God ordained this thorn to come into Paul's life. It was something that God sovereignly orchestrated in his life. Now, obviously it's a messenger of Satan. And Satan cannot do anything that God does not sovereignly permit Satan to do. So God is working out his will in Paul's life, and he's allowing Satan to harass him with this thorn. So God's sovereignly over this, but Satan is the instrument. Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's Paul writing. All things are working out together for good. So God is working this out for good. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. God's working out his will. God's working out his purposes in Paul's life through this thorn in the flesh. Now, let's ask the $10 million question. What is Paul's thorn in the flesh? This has been debated for centuries. I've seen almost 15 different views upon this. Everything from poor eyesight to epilepsy to malaria to depression to the sinful people that were coming against Paul. I've even had some commentators that are way more liberal say Paul was given to homosexual lust. I don't buy that. Here's the reality. We don't know what the thorn is because the text does not tell us. It just says it was a thorn in the flesh. We can guess, but we'll never know. But here's one thing we know. Paul was not born with it. It was not congenital because it came after the revelations. It came after his trip to heaven. It was given to him by God sovereignly through the instrumentality of Satan. And this thorn in the flesh was there to harass Paul. Literally, in the the original language, continually harass, buffet, torment. That word literally means to be slapped in the face. This thing kept slapping Paul in the face, whatever it was. It's the same word that was used for Jesus when he was on trial. In Matthew 26, 67, they spit in his face and struck him. That's the same word there. They struck him and slapped him. The word struck is the same word Paul uses here for torment. Now, there's another person in the Bible who was tormented by Satan under the sovereign purview of God. In the Old Testament, his name's Job. You remember the account of Job? Job was tormented by Satan, and God allowed it. God permitted it. God was sovereignly working out his will in Job's life through Satan. Job 1.12, 
The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has in your, is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God's giving parameters on what Satan can and cannot do. Job 2.6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan can only do to Job what God will permit or allow him to do. So we must remember here, Satan's not omnipresent. Satan's not everywhere at all times. Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not an equal opposing force to God. He is a creature, created being, that can only do what God allows him to do. But here's the question. Why does God sovereignly permit this messenger of Satan to give Paul this thorn, whatever it is? Why? Well, twice there in verse 7. It starts the verse, it ends the verse. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. To keep Paul humble. So that Paul would not be puffed up with pride since he had been transported miraculously to the third heaven and seen these visions. Paul actually got to go to heaven, see visions, and come back. And I want you to notice something. He does not say a word about it. He doesn't say what he saw. He doesn't say what he heard. He doesn't write a bestseller. He could have raked in a million bucks if he wrote a bestseller. Haven't we seen that over the past 15 years? People that went to heaven and come back and write all these books about it? Paul the apostle went to heaven and he was not allowed to say a word. But think about how awesome it would have been for him to promote himself as superior. I got to go to heaven. I got to see these visions. I got to experience something nobody else got to experience. Paul, it could have gone to Paul's head. He could have gone on an ego trip. He could, have, he could have become so conceited, so puffed up, so uh, full of himself because he experienced this. And God says, Paul, I know the temptation you have to become conceited. So in order for you not to become conceited, in order for you not to be, uh, to, to, to be puffed up, I'm going to humble you. I'm going to give you this thorn. Paul was human, just like any of us. All of us are tempted to pride, to conceit, to arrogance, to bragging. One commentator put it this way. A proud, arrogant Paul would have only hindered the gospel's advance. A humiliated, frail Paul, led as a captain of God's triumph, has accelerated the gospel's progress so that the fragrance of knowing God spreads everywhere. You thought about in God's plan, an arrogant Paul would have stopped the advance of the gospel. Maybe those churches wouldn't have been planted. Maybe those missionary journeys would not have happened had Paul become boastful and prideful. And so God's doing this for Paul's good. Paul's doing this to advance, or God's doing this so that the gospel will advance. So we've seen Paul's vi visit to paradise. And we've seen Paul's thorny problem. We don't know what the thorn is. It was given to him. It was slapping him around. It was constant. It was a constant source of pain. It was a constant source of anguish. We don't know what it was, but it was constant. But the third thing we see is Paul's persistent plea. Look at verse 8. 
three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I want this to go away, God. Please take this away, God. Get rid of the thorn, God. This is what we saw last week. Paul's pounding. Paul's asking. God, Paul's seeking. Paul's knocking. He's persistent. He's saying to the Lord, take this away. Get rid of it. I don't want the pain. I want, I want this out of my life. Now, why three times? Does this mean Paul just threw up three token prayers? Why three? Three is very important. If you go back and you read the Gospels, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times. Remember the first time he prays and he comes back and his disciples are sleeping and he says, could you not watch with me one hour? Then he goes back and prays a second time. And then we pick up here in Matthew 26, 44. Leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Jesus prayed so earnestly in the garden that he, he dropped sweats of blood. So Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, intense prayer. So three, three is kind of a symbolic way of, of this intense, anguishing, persistent prayer. Elijah prayed in the Old Testament three times before healing the widow's son. 1 Kings 17, 21. Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come back to him again. In the Old Testament, the Israelites would pray three times a day. Psalm 55, 17. Evening and morning and at noon, three times a day, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Remember Daniel when he went up to the window to pray? When he defied the king's edict? In Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day. And prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This is not just a kind of a mechanical way of saying if you pray three times a day. It's, it's kind of a symbolic way that you look at the Old Testament. You look at Jesus. What Paul's doing here is this is an intense prayer. It's a pleading prayer. It's a persistent prayer. Lord, take it away. Get the thorn out of my life. I'm in pain, God. I'm in anguish, God. I want it gone, God. He kept pounding and pounding and pounding on the door of heaven, asking with persistence. 1 John 5, 14-15, we need to remember this when we pray. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, that's the key there, he hears. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have requests that we have asked of him. We have confidence that God hears, but it has to be according to his will. So we can pray with persistence. We can pray with anxiety. We can pray with the seeking, asking, and knocking. But we need to make sure that at the end of the day, it's all about God's will. So Paul's visit to paradise. Paul's thorny problem and Paul's persistent plea. This thorn would not go away. This thorn kept slapping him around. And, and Paul says, Lord, take it away. Get rid of it. I want it gone. 
Here's the fourth thing. Christ's provision of power. How does God answer Paul's prayer? With a resounding no. No, Paul. I'm not going to take that thorn away from you. I'm not going to take it away. I know you've prayed with persistence. I know you've prayed with diligence. I know you've knocked and seeked and asked, but I'm not going to answer that with a yes. As a matter of fact, when you look at the grammar there, when he says there in verse 9, three, or, but he said to me, he said to me, in the original language, this is a definite answer that God is giving, where basically, if you look at the way it's worded in the original language, it's, it's basically God saying, this is my final answer. I'm not budging on this. I've spoken, and this is what the answer is. It is no. It's God's final word. I'm not going to answer your prayer by taking away the thorn. John Calvin gives a pretty long quote in his commentary. I'm not going to give you the quote verbatim, but basically he says something like this. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we know that God answers with a yes. When we pray for his name to be hallowed, we pray for his will to be done, for his kingdom to come. When we pray those prayers from the Lord's Prayer, we know that, that God will answer with a yes. He says the problem comes when you begin to tell God how he should answer your prayer. When we begin to tell God how you need to answer our prayer, we run into problems. We can pray and ask for things, but we cannot tell God how. So God answers with a no. No, Paul, I'm not taking the thorn away. And when God says no, we should not respond with despair or despondency. We must not think that somehow our prayers weren't persistent enough or somehow that God's not faithful or, or somehow God didn't listen. When God doesn't comply with our wants, we need to be satisfied with his answer. Now, Paul got his answer. God answered the prayer, no, about the thorn, but God answered his prayer. What did he say? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now God said it to Paul. Probably when the answer comes to you, it's probably not through an audible voice. So how does God answer that with a no? Usually when God says no, after you've prayed and prayed and prayed, it's, it's that inner sense of peace or contentment that God puts deep in your soul where you know he said no, but he gives you that peace, even though he said no. Paul says it this way in another place, in Philippians 4, 6-7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know what I find fascinating about that passage of Scripture? 
I've always found it fascinating. Paul says, ask. Paul says, let your requests be made known. Pray to God. Nowhere in that passage of Scripture does Paul ever say that God answered prayer. What does Paul say God gives you when you pray? The peace that passes understanding. Even with the answer may be no. God may say no, but he will promise peace that passes understanding. That peace deep in our hearts. You know, when I mentioned earlier our struggles with Zachary, yeah, it was painful. It was disappointing. But when God gave us that answer, no, immediately we had a peace. And we could begin to refocus our prayers in a different way. And we could begin to understand that God was still good and God was still sovereign. He just chose not to answer it in the way that we wanted him to answer because what's God doing in Paul's life? Look, at, look again at verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect. Now, that verb there for made perfect is in the ongoing present tense. In other words, th- this, this perfection that God's doing in you, this, this power that God's giving you is ongoing. It's continual. It, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, think about living here in Colorado. I will ask you to raise your hands on this. How many of you have hiked a 14er? Some of you have hiked a 14er? Okay. When you get to the top of a 14er, like there's a place called the Timberline or Tundra, right? The Timberline. When you get above Timberline, there's what? There's no vegetation hardly. It's dry. It's barren. Okay. Down in the valleys, when you're down in the valleys, that's where all the grass and the flowers and the, and the beautiful stuff grows. But when you get to the top of the mountain, there's not a lot of vegetation. Okay. But where do we want to be in the Christian life? We want to be on the mountaintop, right? I want to be on the mountaintop where there's no problems. There's always going to be a mountaintop experience. No problems. I'm at the top of the mountain. I don't want to be down in the valley. I don't want to be down in the valley at all. I want to be on the top of the mountain. Listen to what John Calvin says again. He says, the valleys are watered with rain to make them fruitful, while in the meantime the high summits of the lofty mountains remain dry. Let the man therefore become a valley whose desire to receive the heavenly rain of God's spiritual grace. You ever thought about it that way? When you want to be on the top of the mountain experiencing no pain, you could be at the driest spot in your life. It's when you're down in the valley experience the pain when God's rain of grace comes and showers you and sustains you. See, we want to be on the mountaintop. We don't want to be in the valley, but it's in the valley where God sustains us with fresh supplies of grace. Grace every minute. Remember, God said, I'm not removing the thorn. You're going to have to live with it, but I'm going to give you grace upon grace. Interesting there at the end of verse 9, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That word rest upon me is a very interesting word. It literally means to pitch its tabernacle upon me, to pitch its tent upon me. Paul is hearkening back to the Exodus, the tabernacle. What do we know happened with the tabernacle at the very end of Exodus? 
Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When Paul says God's power is resting upon him, he's using imagery from the Old Testament, basically saying that just like God's glory cloud filled the temple and rested on the tabernacle to remind the Israelites of his continual presence, that's what's happening in Paul's life. God's power is coming to rest upon him like the glory cloud in the tabernacle to remind Paul that God's presence is always with him, never going away. Ongoing supplies of power and grace. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God was not going to take away Paul's thorn, but God would give him power and grace. And not just a little bit of it, but resting upon him. Ongoing supplies of grace and power and sustenance. And then in verse 9 he says... I will boast all the more gladly. I'll be glad in these weaknesses. And then in verse 10, he says, I'm content with weaknesses. I'm going to boast. I'm going to be glad. I'm going to be content in these weaknesses. In other words, when you take those things together, Paul has come to a point where he is content with God's sovereign will, even though God said no. He's content. You know, the word content there in verse 10 means to be delighted, pleased. Even though God answered no, Paul is still content. Now, let's not mistake Paul. This mean Paul never feels pain? Just because God doesn't take the thorn away, does that mean that Paul still doesn't struggle with the thorn? Does that mean he's like stoic and he just bears it up and never complains or, or never groans or moans? Now listen to Paul earlier in 2 Corinthians, the same book. 2 Corinthians 5, 2-4. For in this tent, talking about the human body, in this tent we groan, longing to be put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, this human body, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so, what the, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul saying, listen... I still ache in my body. I still hurt. I still moan. I still long for heaven. I'm still in pain. God hasn't taken the thorn away. Still painful. But I'm content. I'm joyful. Because I know it's God's will. What else did Paul experience besides this thorn? Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 28. Again, autobiographical. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure of me on my anxiety for all the churches." All that plus the thorn. You think Paul had a lot going on in his life? Paul got to the point where he was content. Even when God said no, that he stopped praying for the thorn to be removed. Notice three times, no more. 
Three times I prayed it would be removed. And then when God answered him and said, I'm not going to do it, Paul said, I'm done praying for it to be removed. I'm content. I'm joyful. I'm glad. I accept God's will. I know God's still good. I know God's still generous. I know God's sovereign, so I'm going to accept his will here. He's answered with a no. I'm going to accept it. And notice the bottom line. How does verse 10 start? Notice why he does everything. This is why Paul does everything he does. How does verse 10 start? For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ. Paul says, listen, if God does not take away this thorn, it's because it's for the sake of Christ. It's so Christ can be glorified. It's so Christ could be honored. It's so Christ could be magnified. I'm enduring this suffering. I'm enduring this thorn. I'm enduring all this pain for the sake of Christ. Christ's name, Christ's glory, Christ's majesty. And then Paul uses kind of a play on words there. He says there, I'm content. Verse 10, I'm content in weaknesses. I'm content. Which means I'm pleased, I'm satisfied. But then go back up and look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. My grace is sufficient. You know what the word sufficient means? It means more than what we think sufficient means in the original language. It means, yes, sufficient, adequate, but a sufficiency that leads to contentment. When God gives you grace... It's not just sufficient to help you get through the pain, but it takes it a step further. It's sufficient to lead you to joy, to contentment, to satisfaction. When you pray persistently and you ask, you seek and you knock, and you do it over and over again, and maybe with tears, and maybe in pain and turmoil, on your knees, and God says, no. No. How do we respond? How do we respond? Well, he still supplies his ever-ending grace and power. He never abandons us. He's there right in the middle of the pain, right in the middle of suffering, with his grace to give us contentment, joy, and peace. It's very difficult to wrap our minds around. It's easy for me to stand up here and say to those of you that are struggling and praying and praying, and God says no, just be content with his answer. I mean, that's the Sunday school answer, right? It's the biblical answer. Accept God's answer and be content. That's the answer. Now, how we get to that answer in our own personal lives, that's the hard journey. Because a lot of us go through those painful things. And when God says no, I just, want you to, I just want you to visualize for a moment. When God says no, like that glory cloud that came and enveloped the tabernacle, so the Israelites could see visually the cloud rested there. When you're going through trials and God says no, visualize God's presence coming and enveloping you like a cloud. And God wrapping his arms around you and saying, I'm not going to take it away, but I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I'm going to walk through it with you. I'm going to give you grace upon grace 
I'm going to give you power upon power. And it's sufficient. It's sufficient. And you know why God's doing it? In Paul's life, it was to keep him from being conceited. Now, I'm not saying that every trial you go through is to keep you from being conceited. I can't say that, but I do know this. When God says no, he ultimately wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants you to look more like Jesus for the sake of Christ. He's conforming you to look more and more like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're being transformed into looking more and more like Jesus. So when God says no, his ultimate goal for you is, the reason I'm saying no, because my plan for you is to look more like Jesus, to look more like my son, to be transformed. And God's power rests upon you, and God's power envelops you, and God's grace is sufficient for you so that in your weakness, that's when you're truly strong. So, when God says no, let's hold to the words that Jesus spoke to Paul. Look at it again in verse 9. When God says no. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Father, we come before you this morning. And all of us, I think, in our lives have experienced those times where we prayed and prayed and prayed and poured our heart out and you said no. You didn't answer it the way we wanted you to answer it. And we didn't understand. And maybe we were mad at you or, or we were confounded or confused. Maybe even became bitter. But Lord, you're sovereignly working out your purposes in our lives and you're giving us grace. Sufficient grace. Enveloping grace. Like the glory cloud that came and rested on the tabernacle, Lord, your glory comes and rests upon us and surrounds us and envelops us and holds us close so that we can get to that point, Lord. And I'm not saying it's, it's a, it's a, it happens the next day. We get to that point, Lord, by your grace where we can accept your answer. We can be content. We can have the peace that passes understanding. We can accept your will and we can accept it with joy. We can accept it with contentment. Because, Father, we know you're doing it for our good. You're, you're doing it to conform us to the image of your Son. You're doing it for the sake of Christ. And, Lord, at the end of the day, that's what we want, everything that happens in our life to be for the sake of Christ. So, pastorally, Lord, I pray for those this morning that are just struggling in prayer. And maybe they're in the middle of prayer and you, and you haven't quite given them the answer yet. Or maybe some in this room have very recently experienced the no answer. Would you give them grace upon grace? Would you give them strength and power? Would you let them know that you still love them, and that you have not abandoned them, and that, that their prayers did not fail, but that you're a good and generous God and you're doing it for purposes that we may never know, but we're doing it for Christ's sake, for the sake of Christ, for the glory of Christ.
Would you give them peace deep in their hearts, a peace that passes understanding? Lord, help us to be persistent in prayer. But Lord, when you do say no, like he's told Paul, help us to be content. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that it's a never-ending supply. Lord, we need grace minute by minute, second by second. We need your grace. We need your power. We need it desperately. Thank you that you give it to us. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that you're always there with us. Would you help us as we leave this place to be solidified in our hearts that we want your will to be done above all things. And so, Jesus, we ask this in your name, for your glory, for your sake, not ours. Amen and amen. Amen. If